This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ideas are great. That's where you start. But it's what you do with the idea that's the difference between, you know, running your own business and not. You got to pick yourself up, go backwards and slam yourself at the wall like 500 more times until the wall crumbles. 25% of middle school girls already believe they'll never achieve their dream career. career. Hi, I'm Kara Golden, founder and CEO of Hint. Hint. And you're listening to Unstoppable, a podcast spotlighting the journeys of inspiring entrepreneurs. I believe that at its core, leadership is about constantly learning from the people around you. And I'm so inspired by the conversations we're having in our upcoming episodes and can't wait to share them with you. This season, some of my guests include Rebecca Minkoff, fashion designer and founder of the Female Founder Collective, Diana Kaff, author of Girls Who Run the World, Andrew Dudham, founder of Hymns, and Eugene Rem, co-founder of Rumble Fitness, and much, much more. Plus, we ask the million-dollar question, what does it really take to be unstoppable? Let's find out. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from Unstoppable, and we're here with Julie Wainwright, my friend and fellow CEO and founder of The Real Real. We're so excited you're here, Julie. Oh, thanks, Kara. Yeah, very, very excited. So Julie, just a little bit of background. She's an e-commerce, not just a pioneer, a legend in my mind. She founded The Real Real back in 2011. And for those of you who are not familiar with The Real Real, luxury consignment online. I've been buying and selling from her for years and absolutely love The Real Real. They're so amazing. She really change the way people buy and sell high-end luxury across all categories. I was actually on there yesterday looking for some home items as well. So it's not just about clothing and just super, super amazing. Julie also raised lots and lots of venture capital. And also she took the real, real public in 2019. I was cheering from the sidelines saying, yay, Julie, so excited for you. And she's built a membership of millions and millions online, sold millions and millions of products to date, and just overall is just an awesome, awesome, awesome person. So we're so excited to have you here to learn so many lessons and hear your journey. So welcome. Thank you. It's really, like I said, it's great to be in an entrepreneur's program. It's an entrepreneur talking to an entrepreneur. Actually, there's very few women, we were talking about this earlier, about women CEOs writing books, but there's very few women that are actually operating CEOs that are doing podcasts these days. And and part of the reason why I decided to start mine was that I was having lots of great conversations. And I would tell my friends who were not kind of entrepreneurs or living in this world about these interesting conversations that I had. And I thought I need to like bring them to more and more people because there's so many learnings and really 
you know, what I realized too, is that there's real people behind these great brands. And I mean, you're, you're one of them that are just, you know, have had lots of challenges and in spite of it have been able to, you know, move things forward in spite of doubts, you know, maybe along the way you just said, no, I'm going to just go do it. So I'm really excited to have you here just to have a conversation. So take me back prior to, for those of you who don't know, Julie, so prior to the real, real, what were you doing? I was figuring out what I was going to do. Look, I've had a long career. So I started my career in a really great place with Clorox as the second, actually, I think it's the second undergraduate they ever hired in brand management. So I've had a lot of a lot of training that was great grounding in PL management and actually data analysis, even though we were working off dumb terminals off mainframes then. So that was awesome. And then I went into the tech world at a very young age at around 25 at a company called Software Publishing, no longer in existence. And at that time, there was Microsoft, VisiCalc, and Software Publishing. Subsequently, Lotus, which ate VisiCalc. Anyway, so it was early on. And I would say one of the most formative things I did when I was at that company was I raised my hand to do international for them. And at the age of 27, I was setting up international distribution based out of London and ended up because the person, the VP of international ended up getting fired, running that whole division of international, setting up partnerships all over the world. And go living in London, but in France, uh, in Paris and Munich, wow. at least twice a week. And then Milan and Barcelona at least every month, was, I mean, twice a month for Paris and Munich. And then usually every month in Barcelona and Milan. And then also in Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, Rio, uh, Brazil, Sao Paulo, at least every four months. And it was an Awesome. And Taiwan, I don't want to forget about Taiwan, where the first time I ever encountered that I had to go in the women's only wing, and uh, which I don't think they do anymore. I haven't been back there in a long time. So I had to go in the women's only wing and I could request a blind masseuse. And I thought, well, that's something. Anyway, you know, but that was in the 80s. So it's a long time ago. And needless to say, there weren't a lot of women flying all over the world. And there weren't a lot of women setting up their companies overseas. But that probably was one of the better experiences I had for preparing me to be an entrepreneur because... Thinking about what's for dinner, but you haven't had a minute to even think about it before now? Well, let's not make that mistake again. I have a tip for you. Factor. Stress-free, delicious, ready-to-eat meals, just perfect for spring and summer yumminess. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes or less. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options. Keto, vegan, veggie, or calorie smart? Factor has you covered. Discover more than 60 add-ons every week too, like breakfast and on-the-go lunch choices. Snacks and beverages now too. Stay fueled and feel good all day long with whatever they are creating over at Factor for you. And the best part? Each meal is ready to eat in just two minutes or less. And who wouldn't want that? Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. Get started today and fuel up for your spring and summer goals. What are you waiting for? 
Head to factormeals.com slash golden50 and use code golden50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code golden50 at factormeals.com slash golden50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. That's code golden50 at factormeals.com slash golden50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long, Term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. It really was just, you know, you're out there on your own. You're making hard decisions. You're choosing the higher order bit. But having said that, I wasn't developing product. You know, I was, I was an offshoot of the mothership there, but it was a lot of fun and great responsibility and really broaden your life. So I did that about six years. And then you started a company. Prior to the real, I did a small one, yes, an information company for women. But you know, even with pets.com, which is the one everyone loves to talk about, I was brought in to run it. Another entrepreneur had started it, and the venture capital team had asked me to run it. And it was probably about 400,000 in revenue when I took it over. Really? They were that small? I didn't realize. Well, when I was brought in, it was early stages. It was a guy dipping product out of his bare bedroom, really what was happening. And 
All I can, I mean, a lot's been written about pets. Most of it should be rewritten now that Chewy.com went public and there's nothing that Chewy does that pets.com didn't do, which just shows timing is everything. I'm just going to say in life, timing is everything. It's everything when you find a partner or if you don't find a partner, if you start a business, if you get funded, if you don't get funded. So yes. Timing is everything. I I agree. It is. It is. And you know, the whole thing, oh, I was lucky. No, you probably weren't lucky. Timing can be lucky. So when I started um, Real Rail, it happened to be sort of a perfect time because we were coming out of 2008 recession and the audience for internets was much bigger for e-commerce and people were experimenting with different ways of selling. And I think the other thing that was cool, you could get a business up really cheaply and test it. So where things used to cost you millions of dollars to get server farms and blah, blah, blah. Now you could get one up and stay, you know, for 100 to 200K and see if it works. And that's exactly what we did. I actually started with, you know, just just a little bit of money, just like a little bit of money, 200 to 300K. I think it was about 1.2 million in seed when it was all done before I got Series A, but not a lot of money just to see where we're going with this and if I could perfect the business model. And uh, yeah, and it worked. And so were you, when you were thinking about this idea, were you on eBay a lot? I mean, what else was kind of out? No, I wasn't. No, no, no. I I didn't, I never bought resale. I didn't really get it, to be honest. I was sort of out of the loop there and how big it was and the opportunity. And I really, not until about two years into the company, did I really understand how bad the fashion in general is as in on an environmental impact and how much product was going into landfill. And so, no, what I was doing is looking for something that Amazon couldn't replicate going back into commerce. I wanted to get, I knew I wanted to go back and run an e-commerce business and I wanted to do something like that would be really hard for Amazon because if it could be third-party sourced, Amazon will do it. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. And they'll do it better and they'll probably do it cheaper and then you're gone. And certainly having been the CEO of Real.com, the first site to sell movies, where you were selling DVDs at the time and we weren't a rental site, we were a, a DVD sales site and Amazon could undercut us, you know, and they did. In fact, they undercut us so much in pricing that I was buying from Amazon to resell on my site until they found that out because their price was like, below my cost of buying wholesale. So, you know, I had a great respect for, uh, and still do for Amazon and what they do. So I wanted to do something they couldn't, there's not a lot they can't do. Now, Mm -hmm. I know they just said they're going into luxury and God bless them. They'll try. But the truth is they're not good at selling luxury. So I did have luxury development of luxury products as a way, but I also knew I wasn't going to be able to compete with luxury brands. So then, it, so I sort of tucked that away, and that's when my shopping um, exercise with my friend Ann Winblad, where she bought resale in a store in Menlo Park, the light went on. I'm like, that's it. That's the best. And that's when I started going around and figuring out how many consignment stores, brick and mortar consignment stores, and at the time there was something at twenty five thousand. And how does eBay handle? at lecture goods. And the answer was poorly. And how big is that market? And you couldn't get real data, but it looked to be about 
eBay sales around that about $2 billion in luxury, but there was no real data. And then, you know, then you said, well, how do you sell jewelry? Well, you go to a pawn shop. Talk about unpalatable. How do you how do you sell art that maybe you bought at a gallery and you paid five thousand dollars? The answer is you don't, because no one wants to buy that art back. You know, it's like and they're not going. It's not like a car where you can, or even ten thousand dollars or fifteen, where you can drive it up and they'll go, oh, I'll do a trade in. They don't do a trade in. No one wants that art back. But maybe you're over the art, or maybe you moved, or maybe you you know you downsized and you've got all this property that you had that you've been collecting. So that's what was the impetus was. It was always like, we're going to resell things that eBay can't do because they don't have the authority because they're never going to really authenticate and they're not a luxury experience. We can certainly be consignment stores because we can aggregate audiences and really have try to get the optimal price for everyone using algorithms and, and really technology where they can. We can certainly be pawn shops I knew we could beat the experience of just dropping stuff off at a brick and mortar store, trying to do it yourself. And so that was it, really. You know what I love about that story, Julie, is that so many people will look at a business idea and think, there's so many reasons why I can't do it. And you kept seeing the reasons why you could, right? And and I think like that is the key between incredible entrepreneurs and ones that I don't even know what to call them. I won't even say bad entrepreneurs, but there is something, there's just like a DNA there. And I think a lot of it also is by experience too. I mean, I think that when you live to tell about sort of other things, and as you and I were talking about earlier, I talk about in my book that's coming out, it's not just about the building of hint. It's about other things that have happened to me in life and, you know, journeys that I've been on. And I always say to people, like, until you've lived in someone's shoes, you don't know how they'll react to things, right? And I think with so many stories, whether they're business or personal or whatever, you just become better. A lot of things that you were talking about, you know, everything from you weren't necessarily a a resale buyer, but you had a friend who was, and she would tell you stories. And then all of a sudden you saw that and didn't necessarily see that immediately. You might've said something, right? And then all of a sudden, then you start incubating and thinking about these things and and seeing this hole in the market. So I absolutely love, love, love that. When you talked about, so initially it was women's clothing. And then how did you start to think about other categories that you were going into? Well, originally we thought we'd do all categories, but the question was timing. And what was happening is we'd go to people's house. They're like, well, you're selling this. Why can't you sell my jewelry? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, well, let's try it, right? So that's what you always say. Well, let's try it. And then we had a gemologist that we contracted with because we weren't big enough at that point to have anyone on staff. Now we have about 100 on staff. But we we certainly weren't big enough to pay someone's salary and take them out of wherever they were working. So uh, then jewelry started selling. Then that part-time person became, uh, we needed a full-time gemologist. So I would say our consign, we, I always thought about we we're going to consign the house, but not the physical house. And our consigners kept saying, well, if you're doing this, can you just do this? And what about that? So we got pulled into it. We tested our way into it. We put structure around each new category. And now we're in every category we're going to be in. We do do home and art. 
home is like going crazy during COVID times. I'm sure. How is art? I mean, we can't keep art off the shelves, so to speak. It's flying, but everything's selling. And it's such a good thing to buy things that are previously owned. It's so good for the planet. You get a better value. You're already buying a depreciated asset. Tends to be a unique item at this point. You know, you're not buying something you're going to necessarily see in other people or in other people's homes. And then if you are tired of it or you do change your location and you want to get rid of things, they, the things you buy have resale value. Totally. So, you know, so you can keep that circle going, that, you know, circular economy going. And it's good all the way. Everybody wins. The planet wins. You win. The only people, the only people that could not see the value of it is maybe some of the brands and some of the brands haven't seen the value of it. But they're sort of living in another universe than the universe we're in now. We've changed the way people shop. I wouldn't exist if customers didn't want me to exist. This 100%. is a consumer business. I mean, it's just like if you, de- Kara, if you developed a product no one wanted, you'd be dead. Right. You know? It's like, okay. Well, we've seen this over and over again too, you know, outside of, outside of entrepreneurial companies. I mean, you know, Kodak, right, was a company years ago that basically owned, you know, film. I mean, they, they owned it. Like there was nobody coming in. And I know people that talked to them early on about digital and, and they were like, no one wants digital right today. You know, now it's become cool again to go and actually get film, but they're definitely when, when you act as this, you know, big giant and basically try and control what consumers ultimately want or need, then you know, it's not helpful and it, and ultimately it will kill you. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, Clorox, interestingly enough, when I was there, they really said, look, if you don't obsolete yourself, your competition will obsolete you. So they smart. sort of implanted that in everybody's brain. And um, I took it to heart and you saw it all the time. Like if you don't figure out to, a way to do a better this, or if someone wants uh, powdered bleach, you're going to buy powdered bleach. Mm-hmm. And that's going to cut into your market. So why not develop powdered bleach? Don't just say, I need to have this type of bleach. So a true packaged goods marketer gets that. I think when you get so invested in your past or your technology or your board, you know, your board's voice. I mean, the classic ones are the video stores long gone. Who didn't see video on demand coming? They were talking about it when I was running real.com. Five years before it was being talked about, before Netflix was being born. And it was like, well, we'll get the, and you know, the way, the methodology of the way it was going to be delivered turned out to be the way it worked because other things happened, but it was going to work. At some point it was going to happen. So all these artificial barriers that the movie industry had set up, like first it has to go to cinema and then it goes to DVD and then it goes to, you know, first you're going to buy it and then you can rent it. All of that didn't matter as soon as you could have video on demand. It's really fascinating. You know, it's just like that business, which was huge, is gone. It's just gone, you know? And, you know, occasionally find an old, it's like, you know, you're talking about film. Occasionally you'll find someone that really wants to work on film and they may be an incredible photographer that really loves working on film or a great amateur who likes film. Just like, you know, records are sort of back. But, you know, are they masks? No, but they're back and they offer a different sound quality and experience versus 
digital music, so I get it. But now they're not the majority. They're they're the minority, sort of the nerds. You know, the nerds are into it. And that's cool because it is different. But, you know, there are video stores around that have incredible selection. I don't know how they people can even play a video anymore. But, you know, the world's, world moves on, Cons- you know, and consumers vote every single day. I think it's so key. What do you think is the most important aspect of an entrepreneur? I would say resiliency because I don't, and this isn't about being a female or male or anything. It's just, you are going to be told no so many times. You're going to have so many challenges that you didn't anticipate. There's so many reasons to quit. And if you don't have this attitude like, oh, no, I'm going to fix this and I've got this and we'll figure it out. And yeah, that's not, you know, it's sort of, we've got this. It's sort of, I don't know if you ever a Monty Python fan, but you know, when the guy, when they meet in the woods and the guy cuts his arm off and he's like, oh, that's just, a, you know, that's just a little wound, his blood's gushing and he's still got one arm and then they cut off the other arm and then the legs and, they, and he's like, comes back, he says, come here, I'll, claw, I'll eat, you know, I'll bite you to death. And it's sort of like, you have to have that mentality, you know, he's like, you know what? All right. So now I can't go that route. I'll go this route. And I also, you combine that with vision and it's pretty powerful. And that's the positive side of being an entrepreneur. The downside is, you know, you could have a really bad idea and you're really resilient and you've got this vision and no one cares. So Mm -hmm. I would say if you just go with resiliency first, vision is also really important. But then also you have to have this genetic part of you that says, I'm not going to believe my own PR. So I'm going to, I know what I'm doing is great. I believe it can be huge. I'm going to overcome every obstacle. Then parties you like, part of you has to say, but what if I'm wrong? Let me see what I'm wrong at. And then you test yourself. You know, you don't believe your own BS, really. You just say, okay, I could be wrong. Let me test this. I could be wrong. Let me test this. And you could be directionally right and tactically wrong. And if you don't have that mindset, you could fail. So for example, when I got started, there were a lot of companies that got funded all along the same same time in the re-commerce and actually in resale. And almost all of them are dead or the, the walking dead. And so why is that? Why did we pull out versus others? My theory is they weren't testing their assumptions. And it's not, I would say, you know, especially in some businesses, it's pretty easy to get to $10 million, but it's hard to grow a business to a billion, which is what we were at last year. And so how do you get there? You test your way. Like I could be right on this. I could be wrong. Let's test your way. Okay. That worked. Now let's put process to expand it. I could look at their businesses and tell them where they're going to fail. And that's just experience. But I mean, first of all, no one asked me. And B, they were getting money at higher valuations than I was. So I wasn't going to help them out anyway. But I think that we would have had more competition and bigger struggle if all of, because the money would have gone to the men in the business. So you think of like, I think about six resale companies got funded within probably six months of each other. And I was the only female entrepreneur. Other people have a female co-founder, but I was the only female entrepreneur and founder. And we could have been wiped out because they were raising more money at bigger valuations and they didn't succeed. And so what did you do when you saw that news that they were getting, you know, this funding and 
Like they're going to go out and crush you, right? Whatever. That that was the other thing. I got that a lot. I actually have one person call one of my venture capitalists to tell me they're going to crush me. And I said, well, all right, what am I going to do? Pack up, take my tent someplace else. No, I just thought it was hubris. I just thought it was the silliest thing. First of all, I can't control what they were doing. So when they listen, I thought, wow, here we go again. It was just hubris and it was sort of silly. I don't know what reaction. It's not like I was shaking in my boots. You know, it's like, oh boy, there we go. He's going to kill me. He's not going to kill me. He's not doing it. It's not a technology play where his, where a lot of companies got wiped out by picking the wrong operating system in the eighties. You know, they didn't go with MS-DOS. They went some other way and they were wrong. Or they put too much money into Apple. And early on, Apple wasn't a major player as an OS. So, you know, it wasn't, it's not a technology play. It's a consumer play. And when you do that, then they can say whatever they want. And, you know, and I just thought I did get that quite a bit. I love the ones that were, they actually called a VC and would, who had invested in us. And then they called, they go, I met with so-and-so and they said this. I'm like, okay, <laughs> see how that works. Yeah, what are you supposed to do with that information? No, it's, exactly. It made me laugh. It does make me laugh. But look, when I was running Pets.com, the Petco guys literally put me in a room. They wanted to meet. I thought, oh, they want a partnership. Maybe this is before they had um, an online business. In the, and the CEO had two bullies, big guys. We'll call them bodyguards, but they were really bullies. So me and one of my VPs had a meeting with them, thinking it was going to be strategic which he then had these guys stand in front of the doors. It was an act of intimidation saying, I will make sure that your company does not exist. All right. And that was them. And I remember thinking, well, okay, good luck. And they tried. They even tried to derail because Pets.com had an IPO. The IPO, they offered, I think it was Merrill Lynch as our lead, $10 million not to take us. $10 million of immediate business. So, you know what, this is just the world. I mean, they're just, they were acting thuggery. Yeah. I mean, I love stories like that because I think that everybody's had them and you sound like you've had a lot of them, right? Along the way. And it's just, it's really about what you do with that information. I mean, you know, what I remember when Coca-Cola came out with a competitive product to hint, you know, a couple of years into us launching this company and everybody was writing about, oh, hint is dead. I mean, you know nothing's going to happen. And I knew that if I focused on the product and the quality of our product, exactly, and that there was, was it annoying? A hundred percent. I was more annoyed around the press and around people talking to me about it, but I thought there's really not a whole lot I can do about it. What I didn't realize, and I bet this happened to you as well, is that they stumbled upon themselves, right? In developing this product. Because, you know, for example, a soda company has a really hard time with telling their consumer to drink water, right? It's just not what they do, right? And so people had a really difficult time trying to understand why they should drink this product. And then they also used like the cherry syrup that wasn't real fruit from Cherry Coke, right? So the quality of the product. And so what happened was they got all the shelf placements that they were supposed to have because they had bought into, you know, the large retailers and got this great placement that we never were allowed to have. We got kicked out temporarily 
because they came in and crushed us. There was nothing we could do about that. When they decided to back out, the grocery buyers came to us and said, we still have a customer for this product and will you take their space? So every time over the last 15 years that a competitor has come out, we have gained space within six months, every time. So every time this happens, we sit here and talk about internally, where's it going to happen? And we place bets on where is this going to happen? It's now happened seven, eight times over the last 15 years, a huge launch, lots of money. And I bet the exact same thing. I mean, these people screwed up internally and then, and then now you've got a consumer that is into selling buying and selling luxury items and they come back to the real, real. Yeah, they do. I mean, the cool thing about our space when it's huge, I mean, there's literally yeah. billions of products trapped in totally. value, trapped in people's homes. So there's room for people doing what they do and, you know, maybe they'll get to a hundred million. That's fine. But I mean, literally we're sort of in this for the long run and we're, we're going to be fine. I just look at it as at some point, and honestly, care if that would have happened to you in your second year of business, it may have put you under. But at some point, you've got enough moats around your business, you've got a bigger base, you've got enough reputation. And then the key is how do we make it more efficient, get a bigger and keep satisfying the customer? So your goals change. And in our case, also get profitability and expand worldwide. So, you know, we've got other other goals now, but if someone would have copied our model early on and they've tried it in other countries and our first, like our first year of funding of our first 10 million we raised because they were raising 20 million at like 50 million valuations on no revenue, by the way. And I had 10 million and I, my pre-money, I had 10 million was 10 million. So, I mean, I didn't, you know, we sort of got screwed there, but not really. I mean, at the end of the day, you don't because it felt bad at the time. But on the other hand, I got a partner that stood by me for, you know, until we went public and it took a long time. It took about six, seven years to go public. So I got a partner that stood by me. I got an investor that really cared about my business. It wasn't just an investment, someone that wanted to see all of them that came in. All of them felt this way because I still have investors on my board that really want to see the company succeed and gave me good advice without also knowing they weren't running the company. I got low ego involvement around the table, not like, you know, I know more than you do. And it's been a big success. So when you really look back, it's like all of these little gripes along the way and things, it doesn't really matter, especially when you make it happen. If someone would have copied my model and with the money they got, the first year I got capital and they executed better than me, I might be dead. But no one did. And part of the reason no one did is they weren't consumer. They weren't the person ever consigned. Yeah. They didn't understand. No, that's what I was going to say. You were the consumer. I was the consumer too. I understood how to speak about it. And I think like that's another piece that, that I noticed about you as well. Like, yes, it's your core business obviously is you know, selling luxury goods in lots of different categories. But I think also you've done a lot of things, including we touched on this before, but the, you know, how you talk a lot about the future of fashion is circular. I mean, you going and I remember when I first saw you working with Stella McCartney right. and 
you know, and really calling attention to kind of the bigger issue. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, look, I started um, when we were about half a billion, I started calling on different brands and talking to them, the brand groups and talking to them because by then I was really switched on about the eco damage that fashion does. Now, certainly it's done more by fast fashion because it's sort of meant to be disposable, but every supply chain in the fashion world is sort of a mess. And it's really, it's does, it really wreaks damage in the environment. So I started talking about the importance of sustainability. I started talking about how when there is a resale value for an item in the primary market, it supports the primary market. It doesn't compete with it. Mm-hmm. And knocking on the doors, and I got various levels of receptivity. I would say there was a curiosity factor and a somewhat interest factor and just a female entrepreneur that was. And then some people really did listen intently. And one of them was Stella McCartney. Now, Stella McCartney has a brand and a reputation that transcends the size of the brand. I mean, she makes, she is a fashion forward thinker. Things she does or did three years ago, the industry is like, oh, maybe that's a good idea. Like maybe not killing animals for fur is a good idea. You know, Gucci came around to that. Stella's been there from the day one. So, and she never is harsh on her judgment. She's like, I think this is the right thing to do. I'm going to push the edge on coming up with faux leather. I'm going to push the edge with sustainable fabrics. I'm going to see how far I can push it. So when we talked to her about the circular economy, well, she's a big, she loves resale. Mm -hmm. You know, she really believes in the circular economy. Ellen MacArthur was the one that coined that phrase, as far as I know. Anyway, Ellen MacArthur out of the UK had been working on ways to get products that were possibly disposable out of the environment and then back into another use. And her number one thing, she was starting with plastics. But you have a British woman, a famous British woman, Stella McCartney, who's also friends with Ellen MacArthur, who's also a famous British woman who's changing the laws and the way people think businesses operate in Europe and hence the world. When we met with her, she goes, I want to do this. And she said, I absolutely want to do this and let's work together in a program. It shook the industry to their core because again, smaller brand, not a big brand, but big voice, big impact. Yeah, no, I, I listened. I mean, I loved, I loved seeing this and no one was having this conversation. And I felt like you guys really led that conversation for a lot of other industries to start having these conversations. So well, we were, and honestly, I was having the conversation with myself and I, even when I was sitting with other brands and not until we got to Stella, did she say, I want to do this. And I would also just want to credit Stella at that time was under the Caring Group, which also has Gucci and Alexander McQueen and Pino, who runs the group, could have said, I don't want her to do this. He didn't. So that's also a credit to them. They're like, you know what? It's important. Let's let's do it because he could have killed it. He could have killed it. And he didn't. He actually is incredibly environmentally concerned and really believes in sustainability. And I'm sure he viewed it as a good experiment. Well, it turned out to be more than an experiment. People understand, they understood it. We ran commercials together 
then worked with some data scientists and collaborated with some of her scientists to quantify the impact of consigning. And it's a repeatable formula. It's real. So now you can go up and say, look, I sold this much. I bought this much. Here's how I'm reducing the carbon footprint. And it's real. It's it's from environmental scientists. We don't make that up. We want to have repeatable formula. And that all started with Stella saying yes. I love it. And it it was great. I mean, honestly, great. And and, I just think when you start thinking about badass people that live their principles, that's Stella McCartney. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that is my perception from the outside, but it's great to hear you say that from the inside. So we uh, obviously are recording this during hopefully coming at the end of a pandemic. I don't know if that's optimistic of me to say this, but what do you think was the key thing that you learned about your company stepping in? You know, what has been critical during this time, and to some degree, we'd lost a little bit of it, was agility. Mm -hmm. Agility, creative problem solving, and resilience again. And I would say that it's put a big test on all my leadership to see who could be the most agile. We had to think about redefining our business. We had to do it really quickly. And one of the things we did do is switch from in-person appointments to appointments done virtually with curbside pickup in a series of vans. And when you think of anybody that runs an operation centers, we also had to put a safety protocol in place with changing information from the science and medical community regularly. So we had to make sure our employees were safe. And um, originally it was don't wear a mask. And then it was, well, wear a mask. Well, you don't wear a mask because we can't get a mask for the for our nurses and our frontline workers. So we also had to make sure that environment was safe and we were trying to set up safety protocols so our people could go to work and and then make sure you're measuring that and you have checks and balances on that. And this had to happen incredibly quickly. And then we weren't contemplating another raise of capital, but you know, you say we're, we're almost coming in. I think we're probably halfway through this pandemic myself. I hope it, you know, I do think 2021 around mid-year is when we're going to really start pulling out as a, a world. But when you start thinking of how, you know, how much capital did you raise when you're going public, we didn't have to get us to profitability, but what if this is a prolonged experience? So we also, in the midst of reimagining the business, then getting the new tactics in place and making it a safe environment for employees And then we had to right-size our team because our our brick-and-mortar stores were shut. So we had to have a layoff and a furlough. We thought, oh, let's raise money. So we also raised a round of capital. And that went incredibly well. But this is within, this has all started happening from March 15th until the end of May. So when you think of, you weren't going in that direction. It was actually March 12th, I think, in the Bay Area. You aren't going in that direction on March 7th. And then all of a sudden, March 11th, you're shutting down. And so between the 12th and the end of May, we went through massive changes and a capital raise. And on top of that, we had to develop really good working relations within the state of California, which we didn't have with our local governments. Hmm. And it wasn't for us not trying. I would say we did try. We tried in, in Brisbane. We tried in San Mateo. But it became critical because Brisbane was shut down and they said you can only have two people there in you know almost 260,000 square feet. So 
we had to start working with our local government, which was harder in California. It was super easy in New Jersey and super easy in New York. So, but they knew who we were. So this is a fascinating thing. The people in New Jersey and New York knew we were, the people in California didn't really care about us. And yet this is where you founded the company. In, in yes, California. but we're pretty small in the shadow of Facebook and Twitter and, you know, the bigger tech giants. So I think we just didn't matter there. We're in the state of New Jersey when you employ 1,100 people in an economically depressed environment, you know, they care and they give you incentives yeah. to work. In California, when you employ 400 and you tell them you have to lay off 400 people, they're like, okay. Yeah. Right. So it was a different mentality. So we had to figure out how to work with them. And that was a challenge. But now I think we've got it. And I think we have a good working relationship with the state. So I feel good about that. And I would say in general, they still don't know who we are. Cuomo knows who we are. Murphy knows who we are in New Jersey. And, you know, the state of California still doesn't, but that's okay. Because now Brisbane does in this and the county of San Mateo. So we had to work on that. And the other thing is, you know, my employees and my executive team, now we're teaching their kids at home. So think about that. So now you have, as a leader, you have people that have phenomenal pressures on them. So they got to figure out how am I going to, I make sure my kids are getting educated and my work's okay. And I got to do this. And now I'm working at home. And I've got all, and I didn't ever think I was going to work at home. Oh, and by the way, the virus thing is scary because no one really understands at that point. It was all like surface contact. Remember people were washing everything. Yeah. I never believed that. I'm sorry. I'm not a germaphobe anyway. I wasn't bringing my food home and washing. I'm like, oh, come on. Anyway, so look, the fear is real. You have to honor people's fear. And all you need is a little germaphobe in you. And you're like, it, it really lights up all your big fears. That's a lot. And then people's vacations were being canceled because you can't travel. So you have like, it was just a lot. And some people have made it through and some people just didn't, to be honest. Some of my execs didn't, some of my employees didn't. Oh, and then you have social unrest. The Black Lives Matter movement, really important, really, really important. And not something I thought we would be in during the pandemic. I'm glad we are. I think the world's going to come out better for it. I think the U.S. will come out better for it. But a lot of tension. Most of my employees are not white. And there's a big difference between someone who's not white and is black. And there's a big difference between someone who's black and born in this country versus black and born in another country that's now in this country. And also people that have black sons, big difference. So, you know, we've also had to all get educated and really take a good look at our own selves as white leaders. You know, I always think, oh, my God, I've had it so hard being a female entrepreneur, and which is true. I mean, every female entrepreneur has it harder than a male, but I'm not a black female entrepreneur. I mean, who I don't even know. I do. I know one. I know one black female entrepreneur, maybe two now. I mean, it's and that I've gotten funding, but. I mean, that, think about it. Yeah, the funding is, the funding issue is a huge problem. And actually it's, it's tough to, you know, there are very few black founders who, and very limited black female founders that have gotten out of the gate. I mean, there's a few in the beauty industry, but other than that, I mean, 
it's very, very dismal. So just another reason, I think, to pay attention because there are some good ideas out there, but the funding is, you know, is really, really limited and and sadly limited in, in so many ways. Well, I mean, look, women only get 2.5%. We slipped again. Remember, we went up to 2.7. Everyone's like, oh, they're gaining. I'm like, mm, really? Not really. Gaining? Yeah. I think gaining would be like 40% going from two to 40, but we're back down to 2.5 and they don't even, and the numbers don't even break out women of color, but you know, it's almost nothing. Yeah, no, it's super limited. So look, as a human race, we've gone through a lot as a business owner in a public market. We've gone through a lot as a person who assesses talent, the people with the agility and thinking uh, the best creative problem solvers and resilience have risen to the top and other people haven't. And so that's okay. You know, so it's because I think those traits, you don't want to lose those traits as a business. You don't want to lose agility, creative problem solving and resilience. And you can see how people in a business that hit a billion dollars could get complacent or possibly were used to replicating, not thinking. And you can see how, you know, as a company moves from entrepreneurial to more structured and more process managed, maybe we weren't, maybe some people needed to go to a low growth environment. Maybe someone needed to do something different because too much change was too much for them. Well, and I think that's, what's so beautiful about, you know, founder led companies. I mean, we're still, you and I are we're both CEOs, but both the founders. And when I think, unfortunately, as companies grow, as hopefully they always do so often, you know, you don't necessarily have a founder there that can grow with them. And I think when times, you know, when the shit hits the fan or whatever, you you know, you want to say, I mean, that is what I found in your description of what you did. You actually thought about lots of different aspects and you really have to be able to think on your feet. You know, I think because that, that is exactly you know, one day there will be an article about, you know, leadership and really talking about, I mean, this was a test of leadership. And you know, what's really fascinating. I've learned a lot of watching different leadership styles, not within just my company, but watching how different governors have handled it because we're in multiple states. And it's really been an exercise for me and watching during a crisis, what's the most effective way to govern And I would say Murphy and Cuomo really have my support in the way they govern. Not that they, everyone made mistakes during this time because it's crazy. And like I said, science kept changing. You don't have a playbook for this, but I think they rose in national ranking because of the way they handled it. And I've been so impressed. And look, at the end of the day, this story hasn't written. You don't want to pass when everybody said, oh, this person's doing a great job. I'm like, look, Let's get past this because the next phase of being a leader and for us, we're just getting back to 2019 levels now. Our business dropped by 40% in April. And so now we're, you know, here it is in September and our goal is just to get to where we were in 2019. We were growing 35 to 40%. So we still still have a big swing there. So I'm like, we have a long way to go and that's going to require a different form of leadership. The same thing with the leadership in our country. It's like, and at the state level, the states have ended up more in debt than ever before. 
more uh, troubled, the pandemic still going on. So what kind of leadership will both create jobs and safety? Mm-hmm. Because we can't, and you have to have a different way of thinking. And it, you can't take job creation for granted in any state. And I think it's going to be a really big challenge. Some states have had to work harder. I would say New Jersey had to work harder to convince people to put different businesses in, in New Jersey. And California hasn't. So I think it's going to be a test of California leadership. Can they readjust their thinking to think about job creation and enticing people to stay here? Because with the pandemic, with high cost of living, still a housing shortage and wildfires, it's becoming really hard as an employer to say, yeah, we really want you in the state of California. Yeah. Well, and 400, you know, you talked about 400 people you know, losing their jobs. I mean, 400 people is 400 people. Great. I want to go on record. We did bring almost all of them back, but you're, but I think we're still down 150. But I'm just saying that, you know, for a state to, you know, sort of compare that to larger size companies, it like, it kind of doesn't matter. And you're not the only person that I've heard, you know, say this. I think it's, it's an awareness issue and, you know, and, I think it's really, you know, particularly California is, there are many industries, there's disruptors, you're a disruptor, right? You've start, you've created a category, you know, you're a serial entrepreneur, you're somebody that, you know, I personally think that we should want to keep in the state, that there is revenue being produced, right? You know, and I just think that it's just very short-sighted when leaders are not looking closer at, you know, who are these people? It doesn't matter if it's, you know, 40 people or 400, you know, there's still jobs, right? And I think that that's what you were trying to ultimately preserve. So, well, we'll we'll see. I mean, honestly, to me, this is is actually probably the most important point of that discussion. Every time I see something new happening, I'm always observing different things. So um, one of the things I say to entrepreneurs, which is really relevant perhaps for this is, let's say you, you haven't, you've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but you haven't. There are a lot of businesses being created around you. And if you have any tech affinity at all on TechCrunch, you can go see Series A, what's getting funded. And if you know technology, you may have a point of view, will that business succeed or not? If you know business to consumer, which is my niche, I would have a point of view. And then you watch. I always watch. And I do my own investment thesis. Would I invest in this? Where are they going to hit the wall? Where are they going to have problems? Is this really a fundable business? And you don't necessarily invest. You're. This is just you sit there and watch. It's just to, under, to learn. Yeah, I love and then it. You're always observing from afar, right? Like you, so you're sort of always looking at it from a case study. And then you see, did they get their next round? What have they said about the business? And then five years out, where are they? Maybe not even five years, two years out. And then you can say, here was the thesis of the business. Did it work? Did it not work? What, why do you think it didn't work? Why do you think it did work? What surprised you? Same thing with this situation we're in with the pandemic, looking at leadership styles, what's been effective, what hasn't, what attitude is going to take us forward, what's not. Said another way, everything around you, if you pay, if you want to be a good leader, there are examples of leadership that are alive every day. Yep. And you can learn from it. There's examples of businesses that are failing or succeeding every day. And even though you're not in it, and maybe you 
you really don't know what's going on, you can read a lot about it and form your own premise. Because listen, and you can't really listen to the entrepreneur because a really good entrepreneur is never going to tell you what went wrong. Like my premise was wrong or, you know, when it fails or like, oh boy, was I off. They'll say something else. A really good entrepreneur will say the truth, but most of them are still believing their own bullshit. I was going to say, I would say what yeah. went, went wrong and you would say I what would, went wrong. I would, but most yeah. of them are still believing the wrong But most of them won't. Most yeah. of them won't. So they're going to say, well, blah, blah, blah. And in fact, the premise was just stupid. And so I just, you know, as an entrepreneur and waiting, <laughs> I would say, test it. Test out your skills. I, I would also it. say, and this is true of me, boy. I was so envious of entrepreneurs. And it's like, well, why was I envious? Because I wanted to be one. So don't be envious, do it. You know what I mean? It's like, just do it. it. Because when you're really envious of something, it's more because you're not doing it yourself. You know, that's where that stems from. So I'd say, you know, just do it. The other thing I think is always fascinating, and I'm sure you get this because we all get it. People come up and they I had that. It's like, okay, that's good. Ideas are great. That's where you start. But it's what you do with the idea that's the difference between, you know, running your own business and not. But, you know, I got that a lot. Oh, I had that idea. I'm like, okay. Super. No, I I love it. I don't get that as much as, you know, I used to get, this isn't going to work. Right. There's a million like reasons, like people spend so much time figuring out why my business is not going to work. I wasn't even asking them to invest, (laughs) right? They were, they were just like so positive. They had spent so much time in a mat. I used to walk away and think if they actually spent that amount of time on actually doing something that was positive or that maybe could work. Like, while I appreciate them thinking about me and how great it's going to be when I fail or whatever their sort of dream is, those same people, and I love these people that come back and tell me, I thought you weren't going to be able to do this. And now you are. Oh, I'm glad they came back because some of them don't come back. Some of them just let it hang out there, their own little... No, I meet them at conferences, not obviously in the last couple of months. So I meet them all the time. And men and women and people have, you know, and they, I love it when people own the fact that they're wrong. And I see it more and more that people don't sit there and say like, oh, I always thought it was going to be great. Instead, it's like, I really thought this, there was no way that this was going to be able to happen. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a beautiful thing when you actually own that you're wrong right? It's sort of a life lesson. I'll tell you what I got into. I mean, most of them haven't come back as they said. A couple have though, which is really nice, but most of them haven't. But when we were about, oh, 500 million, that was sort of my moment where like, I didn't think there was any going back. 500 million in revenue. It took till then. I'm like, okay, we're going to, we're going to hit a billion and then we'll go to 5 billion. But anyway, I get in the elevator and it's one of those events for every and it just so happened everyone in the elevator was a venture capitalist and then me and they were and quite a few of them had turned down my business all right so you're like oh this is super and then this guy this guy looked over me he goes how's that little consignment business you do you got there and he called mm-hmm. it the store how's that cons- little consignment That's hysterical. and I said well we're 500 million in revenue how are you 
And I swear to God, I just walked out the door open. I walked out and he just stood there. I mean, that was a moment because you don't usually get that moment where you're being, when it was so condescending where you can say, well, we're this. I love it. And I didn't say it with, well, I might've said it with a little attitude, but the point was made. How's that? The point was made. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it was good. And honestly, most people that invest in companies, even when they don't invest in yours, they still want you to, they still love entrepreneurs. You know, most VCs still love entrepreneurs and they really want businesses to succeed because I think most venture capitalists are in it to see a a business being created. The early stage people I'm talking about, well, even the later stage, but you know, I don't think, I don't think anyone wants a business to fail. I think they like it better when the businesses they say yes to win. But, you know, I think everyone really does want a business to succeed, even if they passed. I think that's awesome. Well, Julie Wainwright, so excited that you came on and I loved this discussion. So where can people find The Real Real? Exciting. So therealreal.com, of course, but our stores are open in LA on Melrose and La Cienega, the corner, San Francisco on Post Street, backing into Maiden Lane. That reopened. We never really had a proper launch. We had it open for three days and had to close it. That reopened a while ago. New York, both the Wooster Street store and the one on 71st and Mad opened. So that's exciting. And we're going to be opening a store in Chicago very shortly, right across the street from Gucci. So that's going to be mid-October. Well, let's just say October. We'll give ourselves some wiggle room. Um, That's exciting. And we have luxury consignment offices all across the U.S. where you can schedule either an in-person now valuation of your items or a virtual appointment. And our gemologists or watch experts will do it, or our handbag experts. So I would say consign by... Think about your home. We're bigger than fashion, but we are. Just think about the real realists and you will be doing so much good for the planet and so much good for your pocketbook. I love it. Well, Julie, thank you so much. And everybody, if you like this episode, give a great rating and definitely subscribe to Unstoppable. And thank you, Julie. Thank you. Thank you. We're super excited to spend so much time with you and learn so much. And I'm really excited about everything for you for the future. Thanks, Karen. I'm buying that book. I'm buying Undaunted. I'm going to get off this so I can buy the books. Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much. We'll see everybody soon. If you like what you heard, please help spread the word and leave us a review. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Please talk to me at Kara Golden on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, be unstoppable. Unstoppable. unstoppable.